If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need more listener support to be able to continue producing these episodes this year. So if you are inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. In case you haven't heard already, I also wanted to share that I recently launched a supplementary live podcast called Uprooted, which is more off the cuff and interactive, allowing for live listener questions and contributions. This means you can call in live and be a part of the episode recording. I may sometimes debrief what we talk about here. I may invite some of our past Green Dreamer guests for more casual conversations or even bring multiple people with contrasting or complementary views together to help further expand our learnings. For more information and to share suggestions on what you'd like to hear there, you can head to my newsletter, kamea.substack.com. For now, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Dr. Bia Labache. Some of of the way indigenous people understand reality, challenge some of the very foundational concepts that we have in the West, such as big dichotomies, nature and culture, body and spirit, inanimate and animate, uh, notions of self, of time. The more you learn about this, these groups, the more you understand the richness of these traditions. And I think a lot of people have, through sacred plants, started to get interest in those in those issues. Bia's PhD is in anthropology and her main areas of interest are the study of psychoactive substances, drug policies, shamanism, ritual and religion. She leads Chakruna Institute, which provides public education and cultural understanding about psychedelic plant medicines and promotes a bridge between the ceremonial use of sacred plants and psychedelic science. We begin here as Bia shares about the indigenous roots of healing psychedelics and the historical context of how they've become stigmatized and even criminalized. Yeah, so different populations have used psychedelics across the globe. I have focused my studies mainly in the Americas, although I did travel to Africa once and tried Iboga there in Cameroon and had a little period of interest in that, but I have been focusing mainly on ayahuasca and peyote and other 
medicines from the forests or plant medicines. So we have different uses. The Americas, perhaps the continent that has more psychedelic flora and fauna in the world, it's really concentrated and have different groups using different substances. I think perhaps one of the most used all across the Americas is tobacco that is considered a master plant or a teacher plant and is either used by itself or together with other substances. And you have different ayahuasca using groups throughout the Amazon. We don't even know how many, but for sure at least 70 and probably more Mm. different groups in all the countries that have the Amazon, Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Bolivia, Ecuador. And you have peyote is another strong, famous plant that is used in the north northern part of Mexico and southern part of the U.S. It's native also to this region, and it's a cactus that takes many years to grow. We have also a big presence of peyote among the Native American church in the United States, which is the most organized and expressive numerically number of users. And these plants have been since early, since times of Inquisition, stigmatized and persecuted and misunderstood by colonizers that have tried to outlaw these practices and have demonized the use of sacred plants, have tried to eradicate them altogether. And they have in parts disappeared, in parts migrated to more hybrid Christian versions or remained highly secret and inaccessible. And then, of course, you have the whole system of drug control. Perhaps the the most famous mark that people refer to is the 1971 Convention on Psychoactive Substances uh, from Vienna. And we have tried to, to prohibit the use of the substances and give small exemptions throughout different countries. So you have currently a system that allows some kind of permission for scientific uses or for magical and religious uses by certain traditional populations. So you do have mechanisms by which indigenous groups can apply for exemptions or have their rights protected, but it's rather fragile and there's a lot of gray areas and a kind of challenge in defining the notions of what is a traditional and and religious sacred magical rite by which population. And it's definitely, uh, despite these legal protections and despite other treaties that also protect indigenous people, these substances remain largely stigmatized and misunderstood, and there's a lot of prejudice. I think now that with all this new wave of research and interest in the psychedelic renaissance, what people call renaissance, or others just calling a boom or a new industry. Anyway, the advancement of clinical research with substances like MDMA or psilocybin has helped to improve a bit popular views on the substances and have a more generous and tolerant understanding on them but they remain still uh, largely misunderstood. Mm. And that's also why we focus the work that we have at the Chikrina Institute in creating public education around these topics. 
Perhaps it's also worth unpacking how indigenous knowledges across the board are often undervalued or dismissed as mystical and non not grounded in science. And I know it's a delicate subject because there is, of course, knowledge being shared that may just be false altogether or that are misguided. And yet at the same time, there are other ways of knowing and understanding the world that are not valued by the dominant culture or the scientific lens that may be able to offer important teachings for us. So how have you shifted or navigated this question of what knowledge creation and credibility even mean? And what prevalent beliefs do you think they challenge? Yeah, it's a big question. I think, you know, as in the West, we, t- we tend to think that science and our way of knowledge is simply the truth. And all other views or versions are like ethnic understandings. We don't see our science as a kind of ethnic understanding of mm-hmm. reality and tend to equate science with with reality, with truth, with universal understanding of, of things. But for us as anthropologists, is is different altogether. And that's why it's kind of a marginalized career itself, let's say not the most wealthy, you know, full of job, <laughs> mm-hmm. jobs and opportunities kind of path. But we are trained to study this diverse ways of knowing and learning and to take indigenous knowledge seriously. So a lot of our, our background is to understand these viewpoints and these ways of understanding as in their own terms and understanding these this, this ways of classifying reality and some of of the way indigenous people understand reality challenge some of the very foundational concepts that we have in the West, such as big dichotomies, nature and culture, body and spirit, inanimate and animate notions of self, of time, and of classifying relationships, understanding kinship, uh, different ways of organizing kinship, and so the more you learn about these this groups, the more you understand the richness of these traditions. And I think a lot of people have, through sacred plants, started to get interest in those, in those issues. And a lot of people, by using sacred plants, have started to pay attention to the fact that some of our foundational pillars of understanding of reality are just really contextual and historical and particular to us, but by no means universal. And for me, this this has been personally an experience that can't be dissociated because taking ayahuasca, for example, has always been related to me to trying to understand more about indigenous shamanism or what anthropologists called Amerindian shamanism and ways of understanding reality. And at the base of this is perhaps one of the more dear concepts that a lot of different indigenous people share about sacred plants, which is this idea that plants are in fact like humans. They they have spirit, they have agency, they have culture. So they are sentient beings. They have intentionality. They have a kind of subjectivity. They have a kind of personality. And if you if you do certain diets or follow certain rules, participate in certain rituals, you can learn how to communicate with the spirits. 
that are intelligent and that have teachings to give. And you can create a relationship and you can follow these teachings and these plants might show you things that you wouldn't know otherwise. And these plants can also be seen as having their kind of idiosyncrasies or being capricious or having their, you know, possessiveness or jealousy, uh, have their personalities like just like humans. And engaging in this relationship is something that can bring a lot of learning and can make you rethink a lot of the paradigms by which you you have been taught and you have led your life. And for me, has been particularly interesting combination of a spiritual path with a research path that leads inevitably to an activism path mm. because there is so much power and so much beauty and so many roots and so much tradition and uh, so much wisdom in all of this that it just becomes extra revolting to see all the ignorance, the taboo and the stigma that exists around these topics. Mm. And to that point, in my past conversations with Dr. Monica Galliano and Dr. Suzanne Simard, we had talked about this idea of anthropomorphizing plants and other animals in their scientific research having been viewed largely as a negative thing. And what it led me to question was, whether the interpretation that seeing other forms of intelligence or sentience or agency in other beings is anthropomorphizing is itself anthropocentric and human-centric, because that assumes that we are using ourselves as the measuring stick. And so I had asked if we might better understand this queering of perspectives as omnimorphizing our lenses so that we're not so self-centered in our interpretations and we can have maybe a broader consciousness of reality and of our world. And when I read about this multi-species perspective that you share, that's what it reminded me of. But I'm curious if what I said relates to this teaching of interspecies communication and multi-species understanding and what else you would add to this. Well, I don't know if I if I understood everything you said. I, I don't know if I know this word omnifying as well, but I think it, you can criticize as anthropomorphizing as being anthropocentric if you if you consider that the human is the reference and then we are all more human, but if you consider that we are all we have all a common nature that is human or that is alive or that has intentions and then we are all more like plants as well. So mm -hmm. it's all, <laughs> it all depends on, on how you want to say. But the, the important thing, I think, uh, from a Merindian perspectivism is to say that we in the West have classified this very strict boundaries between nature and culture and think that only the human beings have some kind of agency or rationality or you know ability to choose. All the other things are just material, our body, our inanimate. And what this traditions are saying is that, no, all of us have shared this in common. So I don't think that this means that we are all humans like us, but rather that we elevate the status of all things to this common spirit, if you will, uh, to being alive, to have some kind of role and some kind of relationship to, the, to all the other things that exists. So I think it, it invites us to rethink our categories. And I don't think we're like trying to make indigenous people look more like us. I think it's the contrary. We're trying to, I think what I learned in my studies on, on this topic is, is much more how we have had limited 
understandings of our own nature. And this goes also to, to the idea of the awake state, the rational state, this state of mind that is the vigilante awake state when you understand reality and you consider all other states as less legitimate. So dreaming or intoxication or being under the effect of substances or uh, bodily illness that causes also alterations in the body and in the mind are considered traditionally all states that have things to to tell you and to for you to learn and it's not like one state is the only reality and the only legitimate like this cognizcentric view that only rational mind is what matters and all the the others are like minor or inferior states but all of these states constitute equal modalities of knowing and learning and of altering your body and your mind so yeah, that's more or less what comes to me. Yeah. Um, and I want to clarify that omnimorphize is not formally a word. It was just the word that I tried to use um, as an alternative to interpreting this as anthropomorphizing in much the same way that you said, where it's like it's recognizing intelligence in all of its diverse forms rather than measuring every other being against humans as the reference. So yeah, I think we are in alignment. I didn't have the proper vocabulary to use to describe that. And I think with more and more people and even moneyed interests realizing the healing potentials of psychedelics, of course, more investments are being poured into the research and development of the medicines for potential commercial or more widespread commercial use. And for you, knowing the fuller context of the roots of these cultural and sacred plant medicines, what concerns might you have with their growing commercialization that you think we should pay attention to? I have multiple concerns, and thanks for clarifying that on that word. I never know if, you know, what is me not being a native speaker? <laughs> or I, I do. It's, it's an interesting experience to, to speak another language, although I love to learn languages and have studied English since I was maybe 10 it's it's always you you capture a bit of it but not all of it and and there is this inter interesting ongoing tension about understanding things and saying things in ways that are not entirely <laughs> safe and now i'm experiencing the opposite which is i'm giving lectures in portuguese and struggling to find the words because i'm so getting so used to speaking in english <laughs> so anyway i love all of this uh, talks about about a little bit about how <laughs> the arts of understanding and and communicating and for me the interest in 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 culture is hand in hand with the interest in language but yeah coming back to your question as my my friend published in in our recent book psychedelic justice eric davis writes something along the lines about the new sharks that are circling the waters of the psychedelic movement. And by that, he he's talking about all of the new people that are arriving into the scene. And with this mentality of investors and of making money, I am also just returning from New York, where I spent five days in Horizons, which is a big psychedelic conference that has been happening for 14 years. And I have been maybe four or five times since my first one was in 2010. And it was an entirely different setting than the previous years because you had 
you had the main track and the conference happening. And on the side, you had so many private meetings and, you know, roof of the top of the bar closed off for this investor scene or this by invitation only that. And mm. a lot of people that went there to close business deals and all of us are feeling a little bit like, oh, wow, it's a new era. Not to be, you know, too, too uh, old timer, but I just turned 50. And so it does feel that it's a whole entire new time in the psychedelic movement. And I think the main concern is, is greed and is profits over healing. And it's just falling into more big pharma, mainstream, biomedical ways that, you know, don't necessarily favor the individual, but favor corporations. And also this obsessive emphasis on the individual, forgetting a lot of systemic issues and a lot of collective issues. So all of these traditions show us that health is not just about a physical ailment. And this, this very idea that one single molecule can heal one single disease is a kind of reductionistic approach from a more traditional lens where you would have plants and whole plants that have multiple alkaloids and have all kinds of different combinations healing a specific person with a specific condition. And this healing on traditional lens is often a more holistic set of affairs. So it has to do with the physical dimension. It has to do with the individual but it also has to do with the relationship of the individual with the kin, with the community, with the larger group, and with the world beyond, with the non-visible world, the world of the dead, the world of the ancestors, the world of what is common to all of us. And healing has always been an imbalance on all of those levels. Mm. And this more global view of healing, I think, is completely lost and there can be a big reductionism that allied with some greed and some aggressive patenting techniques and some traditional way of doing businesses are just, you know, there is a tendency to want to make psychedelics just a new, a new gold rush and a new way to make quick money. But psychedelics are not like everything else. And also everything else would need a better approach <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, the health system that we have is not far from ideal, especially in the United States, where there is no universal access and very challenging health system. And, and so, yes, a lot of us are concerned. And also this is why we do the work we do uh, to talk about minorities, to talk about indigenous people and people of color, about women, about queer people, about immigrants, voices from the global south, all of these groups that need special protection and might benefit from psychedelics or have been historical stewards and guardians of these medicines. Yeah. I was thinking about how the process of having something be legitimized and approved within Western medicine often involves reductionism, as you said, and isolating the substances in order to have this close-up lens of how this one substance or chemical might impact something else very specific in a person's body. And so it, in essence, it really decontextualizes the medicine. I don't know if there would even be any sort of research on this because I would... I would assume that it's not an area that would have been able to get a lot of funding to do the research for, but I wonder if you have insights or thoughts on how 
stripping these medicines of their broader settings, their rituals, their web of relations and cultures might actually compromise their full potentials in support of healing? Yeah, that's really hard question. And I think what we have been advocating a lot for in Chikruna is, you know, we have, we're trying to talk to all levels. So we're trying to talk to the ayahuasca enthusiast, that person that likes to drink their medicine or, you know, has a psilocybin underground therapeutic practice from that more individual level or, you know, single professional until like the big corporations all across the board. We're trying to say a big part of our work has been to emphasize the importance of supporting indigenous communities and the roots of the psychedelic movement and not just idealizing and creating a romanticized view of indigenous people or relating to some kind of generic stereotyped indigenous person that, you know, holds all the wisdom and is the the steward since immemorial time, but relate to real indigenous people that are here right now and that exist and get engaged in with their own struggles, so their own needs. And those needs are all, also not related to psychedelics only because indigenous people are not just doing psychedelics all day long. And there's different indigenous people that even don't do psychedelics or, you know, just use tobacco or something that perhaps is not in one of the substances that we're more obsessed with, so get less attention. And so we invite people to look at um, different aspects and different struggles, land struggle, education, language, territory, food security. So supporting indigenous people and their struggles and relating to real indigenous people and supporting indigenous people also as a way to preserve biodiversity. But I, I, I kind of got the feeling that I, I, I took off answering something different than you had asked. So <laughs> No, we love all the tangents that our guests go on. So I appreciate you sharing that. The mission of Chakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines is to provide public education and cultural understanding about psychedelic plant medicines and to promote a bridge between the ceremonial use of sacred plants and psychedelic science. So in light of everything that we just talked about, I wonder what you've seen as the challenges of bringing psychedelics into the clinical setting and our broader social, legal, and healthcare systems given, again, that the process of testing for their efficacy in labs often involves stripping apart their broader histories and cultures and contexts? We can't really, you know, exactly influence entirely how clinical trials are conducted because Mm -hmm. also these trials have their standards and parameters and it's on many ways, psychedelics are victims of this. <laughs> mm. It's not exclusive to psychedelics. All medicines go through these processes. But there are many things that we can aid and help the scientists that are developing this research to try to be more mindful. So I think one thing that is clearly an important lesson is, is the importance of firsthand experience. Because, uh, for example, in Brazil, we have some strong scientists that have created the first clinical trial on ayahuasca in the world. And they have participated in rituals and they hang out with people that drink ayahuasca and talk about it. So uh, they report designing studies that are more mindful 
that are, are more respectful and that uh, take into account people's experiences in a better way. For example, perhaps not putting a person that is naive into uh, a scan ER machine right away, creating research that tries to take into account the perspective of the users and also talk to users about what areas of research are important. So consultation to the community to find out what kinds of research can be beneficial and would be useful from the perspective of those that are immediately involved. Another thing that a lot of scientists have learned from traditional and ceremonial uses is, for example, the importance of group settings. And so have created uh, this, for example, group therapy. So doing the experiences in groups and having them, people share together and the importance of those bonds and of seeing peers going through similar experiences and how that can be influential. And also just on personal levels, if you are a clinician, there's ways to incorporate more the sacred and the intention setting in your clinical practice and perhaps be more mindful on how you talk to people that are going through psychedelic experiences that have had challenging experiences. Another thing that we also invite people is to is to learn and 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 get engaged and informed about the roots of this movement. And by studying and having firsthand experience, we think people can be more open to creating models that are less mechanical and less reductionistic and more holistic and that honor better uh, where these medicines come from. But yes, it's hard. It's not immediate. These are can be very different traditions. For example, in some indigenous groups, you could say that traditionally, not all, but across in some contexts, only the shaman would drink the substance and diagnose the patient. So we have gone a big, big, long way from that to saying the, the medical doctor to the limit doesn't try the substance at all and only patient has it, right? A, a collective setting would be to say the medical and the patient try and do th this together. But in clinical trials or in psychedelic-assisted therapy, only the person that receives the substance is trying it. Uh, so it's, you know, there's, there's things that are quite different and quite incommensurable. If you think this whole native idea that, that the plants are spirits or humans that have agency and you have to communicate with them, it would be funny for to say that, you know, the doctor give that substance, but he doesn't try it himself. That's kind of really weird. But, you know, in a more conventional FDA clinical setting, you're not going to have the doctor do the substance together with the patient. So there's a lot of things that that are different traditions and hard to to, to communicate and and to balance. But we're also we're always talking about the importance of this global notion of healing, of the idea of the plants and not just the molecules. And again, something that is important is that people can just like reproduce, appropriate, imitate the techniques of indigenous people and claim that they are, you know, doing indigenous practices. So <laughs> not claiming that you are more than you are. Is also helpful. 
so that's kind of like a negative teaching saying don't don't say you are like an indigenous shaman when you're not the other thing that is important that we also learn from indigenous people that can be transferred to the context of trials and and clinical practice is to recognize and honor the relationship to the land so find out about what are the indigenous group that exist in your land and what are their traditions and how do they do their practices, try to connect to these people. And so I think not misrepresenting yourself, understanding better that setting matters. And by setting, I'm not just saying the decoration. I'm talking about this general bigger context. All of this could could help a lot. But again, perhaps my answer is too all over the place. Uh, <laughs> Your questions are hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate everything that you shared. And I guess with more and more moneyed interests, looking to psychedelics as opportunities to extract and take and profit off of, as a part of considering the broader context is this idea of sacred reciprocity. And part of your work has been leading and supporting the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative of the Americas, IRI, which is a project of the Chakruna Institute. So can you share more about what you hope to accomplish and facilitate with this platform and also just what it means to understand the political nature of healing? Yeah, so this initiative is in large uh, part a response from our own challenges with fundraising. So I have been in the United States only for four and a half years. And since I moved here and have tried to go the nonprofit route versus the academic one, which was my previous one, it has been extremely hard. I live in San Francisco. This is the most expensive city, I think, or second most. I don't know if New York beat us now, but anyway, it's very expensive. Mm. And this is a very powerful country. So I feel highly challenged and suffocated to make a living here and try to do something that is ideological, that is not profit-oriented, and that is trying to make a significant contribution to the world. And it has been very hard because when you talk to philanthropists and donors, they are frequently people that made money in startups or oil company or uh, mining or whatever, you know, in extractivist industries that have also uh, somehow exploited people and whose money has also is the result often of these inequalities and for sure embedded in these inequalities between the global north and the global south and these structural problems that exist in the world. And a lot of these philanthropists have the mentality that they want to do something that is like have their brand or their name and be their contribution. And that's what they you know, can say they did, which is legitimate in the sense that it's their money and they can do whatever they want. But it's a challenge for you when you want to work with things that have to do with culture, awareness, and minorities and subjective things, knowledge, because that's not exactly sometimes very easy to to measure. It's not so tangible. It's different than working with healing itself. For example, if you develop MDMA as a pill to treat PTSD, it's a very concrete, tangible, deliverable. There's all this jargon, you know, aggregated value, deliverable, 
And, and it's hard for us working on this area of social justice and minorities and awareness and culture and anthropology to get funding. And then you have to run after doing all this fundraising decks and creating all these narratives and trying to seduce donors. So our Indigenous Risk Prost initiative tries to invert that by saying that the onus the burden of investigating whether something is legitimate or not is on us, the donors, and not uh, on the people on the ground. So what we did was a big research in seven countries. We spent almost a year doing this research. So Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Bolivia, although we didn't end up following with any group in Bolivia, but Ecuador, Costa Rica, Mexico, U.S., Canada. And we were uh, researching nonprofit or indigenous-led organizations or led by indigenous people for indigenous people or mainly by indigenous people or with a great emphasis on indigenous people. Some, some of these organizations have help from the outside, but our criteria was always organizations that were group efforts, that were collective, that uh, were mainly for indigenous people and by indigenous people. Why? Because we we didn't want to favor like single families or traveling shamans, although we don't have anything against those. People have to make a living and we respect shamans that travel abroad, inviting their medicine as a way of living. But frequently this doesn't get shared back home equally and is kept on the hands of few. Are also there are just a lot of people that are like experts on indigenous people for like Americans or you know in the circuit of psychedelic science conferences. So the famous intermediaries, people that represent indigenous people for foreigners, but they are not indigenous themselves, or sometimes they bring indigenous people that are again doing a kind of solo flight and not representing their groups and not sometimes are not even known by any group, local group. They are kind of experts in being indigenous and attending conferences representing indigenous people, but they are not leaders in their communities. And so our effort was to look for those organizations and then, you know, our modest, modest contribution to this decolonizing philanthropy is to, uh, we don't really have, you know, people don't have to send us decks and, and justifications and, and do sexy narratives because we recognize that the work they're doing on the ground is important and it matters and it's something that is worthwhile. And so we we give them the contributions that we were able to to fundraise and they can use as they see fit because this is also one of the main problems that organizations have is that they have to pay for operation funds and for staff and for things that are not sexy and not not great achievements <laughs> and are not something you can just show and say, I did this, but there's a lot of costs just to exist and make things work. And that's where organizations need money. And so we 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 don't ask people to to tell us, create budgets and tell us why they need to spend. We we are going to ask them to send a report for our files on how this money was spent. But that's that's more or less the spirit of our our indigenous organization, indigenous reciprocity initiative program. 
And so we have created this map. It's in, available in our website. And we are also not gatekeeping information about this group. So anybody can go there and get in touch with them immediately and can donate to them if they want. If they prefer, they can donate to the indigenous program as a whole. And then we get a percentage, an administrative percentage, which we kept on the low end because this is really not a fundraising method for Chakrina, but it is aimed as creating this reciprocity. And then we share this among all the 20 recipients. However, we are a very small and modest nonprofit, <laughs> grassroots. We are not philanthropists and we don't have a ton of donors or wealthy philanthropists at our disposal. So the amounts we have raised so far are modest, but nevertheless, we're really proud. It is making a difference and it does help. And we're creating this relationship with, with all of these different partners and also consulting them on ways that they would like to see this move forward. Because the whole spirit behind this idea of reciprocity and I think a lot also what we learn in anthropology is trying to see how things feel from on, on the lenses and on the body of that other person. Mm. So instead of asking them, how can you help me? Or why don't you come and sit in my conference? Or why don't you come and increase diversity in my board? Why don't you come and do this for me? It's like, what can I do to help you? What do you need? What are you engaged with? How can I support what you have going on? Because those are the real experts and those are the real people on the ground doing the real work. And there's, there's numerous studies that show that areas with indigenous people have much higher uh, bioconservation levels. And so these populations have shown over and over again that they are entirely able to manage big, uh, their territories and have their autonomy. And this whole idea of sovereignty and autonomy that indigenous people should have the rights to lead their own societies according to their own standards. And so we are trying to invite from the, the small person, the small individual, you know, ayahuasca lover to the big corporation, everybody to join this movement of reciprocity and of giving back. So if you're starting a new clinic or if you're starting a business or if you're starting an ayahuasca underground circle or if you have a psilocybin church, whatever you have, all of us have a moral obligation to reciprocate and to give back and to recognize that the roots of these movements lie within indigenous people because there is this continuity between the traditional use of sacred plants, ceremonial uses, and the therapeutic underground in the West, and also with the above-ground clinical trials. There is this line of continuity. So even if you only like synthetics or you only use psilocybin or synthetic mescaline or LSD or MDMA, in many regards, we are all heirs of indigenous people because it was through imitating their use of substances or studying their molecules that they found out, their plants, and isolating and combining others that we created our own psychedelics. And also just the, the concepts and the, you know, the ways in which this substance are used are largely a, a legacy of indigenous people. 
again, I like to quote an indigenous elder that was in one of our recent events, and he was saying, okay, think about the millions of plants that exist in the Amazon. How did indigenous people manage to combine these two or other ones that like to create ayahuasca and to bring this to light versus somebody, you know, after you find out about mushrooms through the Mazatec in Mexico, you synthesize a slight variation of how to synthesize, isolate psilocybin. Where is the big finding? Which was harder? What has been an impactful book that you've read or a publication that you follow? I think I read when I started social sciences, Bartolomé de las Casas. He was a missionary visiting Mexico, trying to understand indigenous people and having a lot of existential conflicts as a missionary. I found that entirely fascinating. Mm. What are some personal mottos, mantras, and or practices you engage with to stay grounded? I'm trying very much to stay entirely out of social media. I think social media has become highly toxic. And for us, it's challenging. We get a lot of attacks, a lot of trolls, mm -hmm. and it just steals a lot of time. And I'm trying to, to be less vulnerable to that because, you know, we also have haters And so it's, for me, staying out of social media is one of the more healthy things to keep sanity. And what are some of your biggest inspirations right now? Uh, I'm inspired in, in, being, in having taken my, getting my American passport and my American citizenship and also my new driver's license and inspired in <laughs> adapting more to the United States and trying to fit here and trying to make peace with this intense uh, country full of so many paradoxes and so many challenges, but that also has a lot of opportunities and is still a place of hope and dream for immigrants. And it's been a fascinating process to try to, to make it in America. Well, Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Bia's work, you can head to bialabache.net. The other websites are shakruna.net and shakruna-iri.org. And all of these links, as well as their social media, will be shared within our show notes on our website. Bia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an honor to share this conversation with you. And thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. What final words of wisdom do you want to leave us with as Green Dreamers? I thank you, too. I, I feel honored to be here. I, I would like to invite everybody that wants to support Chakruna to join our, memberships, our membership system, which is our way that we're trying to figure out on how to move forward in a sustainable way. And want to encourage everybody to be curious about these topics, visit our site, and again, learn different languages and read and study and, and praise knowledge and not let like the speed of everyday life and the video clip kind of culture we live in 
steal away from us the pleasure of understanding and and flirting and delving into all of these incredible stories and universes and knowledge and wisdom and tradition and uh, roots that are part of the psychedelic movement. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Magic Hits by Adrian Sutherland. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 